Philippians chapter 2. And it's probably good that we only have two verses to look at this morning. <clears throat> so, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. You know, if you are saved by Jesus Christ, if you've had uh, your sins washed away, you've been reconciled to him, you know that Jesus came for you, he died on the cross for you, this should produce a change in your life. That people, when they are saved, should not be the exact same person that they were before they were saved. That doesn't mean that everything instantly changes, but there should be changes that start, that are happening, that are progressing in their lives. And there's some people that are a great example of that you, that you can see. And maybe you look at your life, and I hope you can, that you see, wow, something radically changed uh, when I was saved. When you were born again, that you received a new heart, you received a new nature, new desires, and it gradually was changing in your life. And so I know there's many examples of people in this church that would talk about that. Um, some of you have heard me uh, talk in the past about, um, you know, my parents when they were saved, and my dad that I uh, was a very heavy drinker, owned a tavern, and when he was saved, God took that out of his life. He sold the tavern. That doesn't mean that everything changed in his life instantly, but some things dramatically and other things over time. And if we think about who wrote the letter to the Philippians, this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, but he didn't start out as the Apostle Paul. When you first meet him in Acts, uh, Paul, who's also called Saul, is this self-righteous Pharisee who hates Christians and who is going around encouraging Christians to be persecuted and killed. And he is even on his way to uh, help round up other Christians when Jesus appears to him and, and changes his heart, changes his life, and saves him. And so the author of this letter knows that, yeah, when you encounter Jesus Christ, when you're saved by him, it ought to produce a change in your life. You realize who he is, that the sun came down. All the things that we talked about in the last message from the first part of chapter 2, uh, where he calls us to, to love others like Christ loved, that he came down from heaven. He is the eternal God, but he was willing to humble himself, become a human being, a servant, and to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to pay for our sins. Now God raised him up and gave him the name above every name. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we believe all those things, this ought to, it needs to produce a change in your life. It cannot just be, oh, I'm saved, I don't have to go to hell, and that's it. Merely escaping hell is not the end game. So let's read chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like I said, it's only two verses but there's plenty enough there for us to talk about for the rest of this time. And this is a passage that sometimes can be taken out of context, confusing, uh, for those that believe that, yeah, you ought to work for your salvation. 
They can point to this and take it out and say, yep, see, look, some of you say that works aren't a part of it, that you don't have to work to be saved. Well, this tells you to, uh, to, to work for your salvation. Well, I think we need to read the passage carefully and we need to read it in context. So the first point that I want to give you to consider as we summarize verse 12, say it like this. You can't work for your salvation, but you need to work out your salvation. There's a big difference between working for your salvation and what the text actually says. And even in the Greek, it uses different words. It doesn't say work for, it says work out your salvation. It's what we are called to do. So just to make this really clear, sometimes we have to say, be really clear on what this passage is not saying before we talk about what it is saying, so we're not confused about this. We need to be really clear that no one is saved by working for their salvation. You can't get saved that way. You don't get saved that way. If you're trying to get saved that way, you're not saved yet. And when we get to Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to, even in this letter, make that really, really clear. That we need to, you know, consider our own self-righteousness as worth nothing in order that we may gain Christ. We can't just add grace to our own self-righteousness to be saved. It doesn't work that way. Other things that Paul has written, uh, we'll go through this really quick, just to make it really clear to you, I hope, that we are not saved by works or any combination of our good works or our effort. So it's not a matter, it's not a message of you need to do better than God will save you. He'll give you some help so you can do better so he'll save you. It's not a message of ask Jesus into your heart so that you can work harder so that he'll save you because you're turning over a new leaf. That's not the message of scripture. It's a message of grace and grace alone. Romans 3, 28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the way that you get justified, the way that a Christian is justified, and that's a legal term that a judge mentioned with the, the gavel says, I declare you to be righteous. And it means both that you're, you're not guilty because you're forgiven, but also you have the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to you, credited to you. And saying here, it is not by works of the law. It's apart from that. It's by faith. Now, another place in Romans, Romans 11.6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the one, he said faith, and this one he says, he says grace. Faith means trust. Grace means free gift. This is saying that the way that uh, we receive salvation is not by working for it. It's the opposite of that. It's by grace. A gift is not something that you work for. Uh, if you work for it, it means you're earning it or trying to earn it. But grace means you don't work for it. It's freely given to you. And all you do then is accept it, which is what you do by faith. And here he's making the point that these two, grace and works are incompatible. It's by grace then for, therefore, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The two cannot go together, works and grace. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a second, one says faith, one says grace. We know it's not works, but which is it? Well, Paul in the book of Ephesians makes it really clear to us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
So yeah, it's by both of those. Grace is how God gives the gift of salvation, how he offers it to us. It's given to you, offered to you as a free gift. But then the way that you receive this gift is by faith. It's not by working hard. It's not by some church ceremony. It's by faith. And what faith means is not just mere belief, but you're trusting in what Jesus Christ did for you, relying upon what Jesus Christ did for you, that you believe and that you trust that the creator, son of God, came down as the God-man, fully God, fully man, and died on the cross in your place to take your sin. You trust that. And you trust that he gives you the gift, the credit of his righteousness. So you stand before God, not clothed in your own righteousness, but a righteousness that is given to you as, as a gift. And so it's given by grace, it's received through faith, Uh, But then Paul makes this really clear. He says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one would boast. If it was based on our works, even if it was based partially on our works, then we could pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Even if you thought, well, it's 90% God's grace, but you know, I had to do my 10%. You could still pat yourself on the back and say, well, at least I did my 10%. You know, those heathens out there, they couldn't even do their 10% or their 1%. Wow, I'm a better person. But this should humble us that it is nothing that we did, that it is all what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, and all we're doing is receiving that gift. And let me tell you, this gift is available to you, to anyone, if you are hearing this in this Uh, Worship Center, if you're hearing this online, if you are drawing breath, this is a gift that is available to you and we implore you to take it. Turn away from your rebellion against God and receive what Jesus Christ did for you so you can be saved. And this is the beauty of it, is that uh, it doesn't matter how bad of a person you were, uh, that how much sin that you have, Christ's death, his blood is sufficient to pay for the worst sinner that history has known a thousand times over, a billion times over, because his death is of infinite value, but it needs to be received. So we're trying to be really clear on this. Uh, In the book Transforming Grace, Jerry Bridges makes a point that grace and good works are mutually exclusive. He says, he writes, we cannot stand, as it were, with one foot on grace and the other on our own works of merit. And when I think of that, I think it's really helpful because so many people, they, I think, want to split the difference and say, well, it's, it's kind of both. You know, I'll trust, I'll have one foot, you know, on Jesus and what he did, but I'm still gonna, I gotta trust what I did too. I gotta have my backup plan. And sometimes I thought about it like this, you know, if you were out on the lake, okay, and you were trying to, for some reason, stand in like two canoes, okay, or you're going to pick a canoe. Let's say you had one canoe and it was pretty stable and it was a good solid canoe. It's not sinking. Okay, that one's going to keep you up. Let's say you had another canoe and it's all full of holes and you try to pick that one, you're going down. But, and so the good canoe is like standing in grace. The bad canoe would be like standing in your own works or your own self-righteousness. You're going down. But think about this. If you try to say, well, I'm going to have one foot in the, the stable canoe 
and one foot in the canoe that's all full of holes, you're going in the water the same way as if you were totally just standing in the one with all the holes. And so in the same way, if you're relying on your works, your righteousness, your merit, I think to the least bit, you're going over. You need to change your mind, change your attitude, and put your reliance in Jesus Christ completely, totally, wholly. So that's what this doesn't mean, but we got to talk about what does this passage actually mean then when it talks about that we are called to work out our salvation. So it says, Therefore, my beloved, again, he's talking to the Philippians. You see the care that he has for them. He says, As you have always obeyed, so now not only is my presence, but much more in my absence. He's saying, One of the great things about you as a church, as a people, is that you are obedient. He's not saying that they perfectly obeyed. I'm sure that's, we're sure that's not the case. But they had a, a, a genuine pattern of obedience that was very admirable that they have. And Paul is encouraging them for this, that they're, they're following the Lord. They're doing what the Lord calls them to do, and that's a good thing. You know, the word here for obey is related to the Greek word for to hear. And so it basically has this idea, you know, sometimes we talk to our kids, it's like, did you hear me? Hear me. And what we mean is, it's not just, okay, I heard you, but it's hear me and then obey what I said. And so in the same way, real obedience is we hear what God is telling us, and then instead of blowing it off or having it go in one ear or out the other, we actually obey what he says. It's active hearing. It's responsive hearing. It's hearing from the one that we recognize as Lord. And if God tells us to do something, we recognize, yep, he has the authority, and I need to live this out. It's that type of hearing. That's what obedience is. So we should be thinking about our lives. You know, are we doing that? Or are we just, um, just going through a life when we're not even hearing what God is telling us to do? In one ear, out the other. Oh, I, I didn't hear that. I'm going to pretend I didn't because then I'd have to do something I don't want to do. Hearing and obeying. But Paul is telling them, hey, you guys obeyed. It's a beautiful thing. And he's saying, also, not just when I was with you, but even my absence. Paul is in prison at this point, and he's still hearing good things. You know, it's one thing to obey when your mentor is right there with you, or your parent, or whoever the authority is. It's another to obey even when they're not there. And that's what the Philippians are doing. That's a good thing. And that's what we should be doing, you know, as well. It's not just, I'm going to obey the traffic laws when the police officer is right there, but we're going to do what is right uh, even when... uh, the other people are absent. That it's not just, well, people from church are looking or someone might find out. No, that we are obeying because we want to please God by doing what is right and that he is the Lord. So it says that, and then it tells them, here's the the command, what they're supposed to do. He says, work out your own salvation. And he says, with fear and trembling. So we talk about what this means to, to work out their salvation. And I think, again, the the key to recognizing this is he doesn't say to work for their salvation. He's saying to work out their salvation. And the Greek word that's used here of of working out salvation uh, was actually, it was used commonly for farmers that had land that was contracted for them, to them, to, to farm and to work the land. You know, so thinking about this, 
maybe has some ideas that in the same way we are to work out our salvation in the sense that, that we have been given something and now we are called to produce growth, not in a field, but in our lives. God has given you salvation. And again, just escaping hell is not the end game. That's not the, the ultimate goal. He's given you uh, forgiveness, yes. He's given you a repaired relationship with him. He's given you an eternal destiny. He's called you uh, into his family. He's adopted you. He's called you as, as citizens of his kingdom. And these are things that we need to live out. We need to live out the implications of this. Uh, being a citizen is not just a matter of the rights, but it's a matter of responsibilities as well. And so maybe in a way, he's basically saying to live out your salvation. I mean, he uses the word for work, but it's, in a way, he's saying the same truth of Philippians 1.27 that we looked at previously. He's saying it in a different way. To let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're saved, your life needs to be changing to reflect that, to be living into your new identity. You know, the moment that you are saved, you are considered a saint in the eyes of God. And before even any, you know, external change in your life is being produced, he already views you as holy because you have been given the credit of Jesus's righteousness on your behalf. And it's not a matter of, well, okay, you're temporarily saved. Now you better get better as a person so that God saves you because you're a good person. No, you're always saved because of what Jesus did and the righteousness of Christ that, uh, that just, just covers everything. Um, I was, my mom is here and we're talking with her about the, the backyard at the house. I just thought of this. And she mentioned, yeah, there's some stuff that's not, um, doesn't look great right now, but she says, you know, pretty soon the snow will fall and it's going to cover all that. We won't see it. You know, in a way, our lives are a mess, and they still are, and there's work we do, but it's the blanket of the snow of the righteousness of Christ that covers everything for us, as you can stand before God. So the instant that you're saved, God considers you holy, he views you that way, and we are now called to to live into that, to grow into the, the man or woman of God that he has created and calls you to be. Not so that he keeps loving you. He's going to do that. Uh, not so that you keep your salvation. God's not going to take it away from you. You're not earning your salvation uh, after the fact. It's not just grace is not a loan that is given to you. But because he loves you enough to make you into the, the man or woman that he created you to be. To be conformed to the image of Christ. So we're to grow into that. So obedience, the things that are talked about here, obedience to God, uh, good works, uh, changing lives, these are not the causes of our salvation, but they are the results of our salvation. There's a big difference in cause and effect. So you're not saved because of obedience, because of these things, but when we are saved, this needs to be the effect that it has on our lives. Also, too, when, it talks, when Paul talks about this, when he says your, it's actually plural. That he's not just saying this is just for each person individually, but together we're to be doing this. 
And that's also a reminder to us that, that working out our salvation, living the Christian life together is something we're supposed to do together to help each other to grow, to grow together to do that. That's why we're not supposed to just be atomized Christians just on our own. That's why we gather together. That's why I hope you're getting to know other Christians and that you're letting other people get to know you as well. Because this, this growth that we have is a, it's a community project that we're to be doing together. And it says to do with fear and trembling. Not in the sense that we're terrified, like, oh, if I don't do this, God's going to be so mad and he's going to, I guess, stop loving me. But what it means is that this is a duty that we take seriously. This is not something that we just, it's, well, if it happens, it happens and whatever. Uh, I got my get out of free, hell free card, so eh, what does it really matter? No, we recognize the Son of God died on the cross for me. That means something. That's important. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That means something. I want to be careful how I live. I want to be active in, and dedicated in trying to live in a way that pleases him because I love him so much, because I'm so thankful, because I'm so hopeful of the, my future with the Lord. Something that we take very, very carefully, and we really feel an urgency to do this. Working out your salvation requires work. It's not a works in the sense of something that you do to earn your salvation, but it is work. It requires effort. And we'll come back to this, but it's not something that's just passive. It is using the Greek word for, for work in uh, this verse. But we have to look at this, and I think verse uh, 12 and verse 13, we always need to take these two together to make sure that it's, it's balanced. So on one hand, yes, you are called to grow, to work out your salvation, to think through, okay, what are all the implications, the change of life that you ought to have for this? But then verse 13, the next one, lets you know, yeah, you're called to work, but God isn't telling you, yeah, you better do it now, and you're on your own, and this is going to be in your own power. I did enough to get you saved, now the rest is up to you. But our whole Christian life is by God's grace, and is by and through his power and his work in us. So the second part of this, the only reason that you can work out your salvation is because it is God who works in you. You're to work out your salvation, and you can do it because God works in you to do this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, Paul wrote this in Greek. And in Greek, the very first word of the sentence is not for or it is. The very first word is theos, which is the word for God. So it's making this like, it's putting emphasis on this, saying God for it is who works in you. This is not self-help. This is not pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, your own willpower or techniques that you get off TV. This is God working in you. And so Christians, you have, you have God in you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the one that, that drew you to him, the one that uh, changes your heart, that causes you to be born again, is indwelling you and, and transforming you from the inside out, working in and through you. And the verse here, it's written as a present tense, suggesting this is ongoing action. It's not, well, God gave you a little bit of help and now he's done. This is an ongoing thing because we always need God. 
we always need his work in our life. It's not just a jump start. We have that where uh, I had a car in college that uh, several times conked out on the, on the freeway in Chicago in rush hour traffic. And, but it was a stick shift, so sometimes I could pop start it if I was rolling down the hill just enough. Or one time I died there in rush hour traffic and the tow truck comes behind me and, and starts pushing me to get me out of the way, but it was enough I was able to pop the clutch and, and go on. God's help for you is not just a little jump start. It is continuous, continual in your life. So you're called to do this. You're called to work out your own salvation. Uh, but this is not something that you do in your own power. Working out your salvation is your responsibility, but you do it with God's resources at work in you. As part of the benefit of what Scripture refers to as the new covenant, that we even have more resources to live out the Christian life than the Old Testament believers. And we take these things for granted, but the big thing is the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us, transforming us. In Jeremiah 31, it talks about the new covenant uh, that, that Christ inaugurated with his blood. And, and part of it says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So it's not just an external law written on some stone tablets somewhere, but God is putting in our hearts, changing our hearts, writing this on us. In Ezekiel 36, 26, 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we're the ones, we are called to be careful to obey his rules. We are called to walk in his statutes, his laws, his principles. But it says as part of this, this new covenant arrangement, God is going to work in us and put the Holy Spirit in us to do these things. He says, I will, I will cause you to walk this way. So it's us doing it, and it is him doing it as well at the same time. And the Holy Spirit is the, uh, the one that transforms us from the inside out. He empowers you for service. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in your life, thinking, I could never have the fruit of the Spirit. I, I just can't produce that for myself. These things, yeah, you can't. That's why it's, why it's not called the fruit of you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by Him in your life. And so God is the one that works in you and changes you. And I want to point out too, it's not that you do half the work and God does the other half. It's not like that. Uh, you work 100% because God is at work 100% in you. One theologian, John Murray, put it like this, said, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because of God's works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produces the required results. God works in us, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. And we see at the end of Verse 13, it's for his good pleasure, for his glory. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Everything funnels to the glory of God. Everything is ultimately for that, so that he is lifted up, we treasure him, he receives the glory, and we receive the joy through that. And this relationship, God working in us, what is pleasing to him. The author to Hebrews writes something like that in in chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. It's Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. So we are called to work, to please him, but he is working in us what is pleasing to him. That means he is the source, he is the goal. That means he gets all the glory from this. Even the things that we do to please him, he gets the glory for that because it's not from our strength or our own power. God gets the glory beginning to end because it is by his grace from beginning to end. And praise God that it is. Because if at any point it was based on me, I would screw it up. And you would screw it up too. So praise God that you are saved by him, you are called by him, justified, sanctified, you will be glorified by him, and it's all by his grace, kept by him to the end. Let me give you four final applications. So reject two errors. Reject the error of passivity and the error of self-effort. Some people are going to fall off the bridge on one side, some are going to fall off the other, and these verses are great to help us to have guardrails and to hopefully not fall off either side. So reject passivity, that means we must act. Christian growth, living out the Christian life, is an active thing. It is not just, well, it's just going to happen because it's God doing it. No, it's, it's active. God isn't just going to zap holiness into your life. Okay, he's working in you, but there's things that he's calling you to do. There's disciplines. There's uh, things that you can do to help along with this. It's good that you're coming to church. It's good that you're growing together. I hope you're in the word throughout the week. I hope you're meditating on it. I hope you're praying to him. I hope that you're doing all these things that we need to do, these, uh, these uh, things that, that help us to grow that God is calling us to do. It's not just a matter of let go and let God. I don't have to do anything. It's just going to... No, there's things we do, but God is at work, but it's not passive. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul wrote, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Yes, the growth was from him. And you can't, like, you can't just like command a plant to grow and say, grow. No, it's, but you can plant, you can water, you can take the plant, you can put it in the right place so it's getting what it needs. You can protect it from things that would destroy it. So there's active things we need to do, but also reject self-effort. It's not by your own power. Your salvation and your spiritual growth are both by God's grace. This passage also should give this application. Stop making the excuse that you can't change. Don't believe the lie whether it's from yourself or from the devil or the world around you, that this is just how I am, it's how it's always going to be. No, I guess in one sense, if you're saying I can't change, 
I, there, technically, that's true. You can't change, but God can change you. There's a huge difference. And the one that's changing you is God. So don't think, oh, I can't change. God is at work in you. Blow off that excuse. Don't let that, don't believe that lie. Cry out to God for both the desire and the power to obey. In Matthew Harmon's commentary on Philippians, he writes this, God, by his spirit, implants within us godly desires to obey him. And one of the elements often missing from our attempts to grow in godliness is the recognition that God must give us both the desire and the power to obey. Therefore, he writes, cry out to God for both the desire and the power to obey. So ask him in your prayers. Pray to him, ask him, cry out to him. Not just to give you the ability, but to change your heart to change your desires, to give you new affections, new loves. You stop loving those sinful things that are killing you and start loving the good things that he has for you, to start loving him, to change your heart. God is really good at changing hearts. That's what he does. Keep praying for him to be doing that. Don't depend on your own willpower. Change for him. Pray for him to change your will, to change your heart. And finally, Ask yourself this as you evaluate your life. Ask yourself, this is thinking back to last week's passage in the beginning of chapter 2. If God the Son really came to earth and died on the cross to save me, what should this mean for my life? If this is true, he came down, he died for you, doing that for you, and then rose again and he is the Lord, what should this mean? In the passage from last week, one big thing is put other people first like he did. Follow that example. Have you been trying to do that more this week? Will you try to do that more this coming week? Assess your life. Is there anything that you don't even care about but God cares about that you need to evaluate and think about? Think about what would please God. Start doing that. What would displease him and therefore you ought to stop doing that? What do you need to to hear and obey from him? Live as though Christ is Lord, because he is. And live as though you are a citizen of his kingdom. Live that out. And, you know, next week's message, I hope you come back for this, it's going to spell out some more of the concrete ways that Paul is telling us how we need to live this out. So I hope you're connected with all of this. But for today, the big idea is you can't work for your salvation but you must work out your salvation because God works in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise. We thank you that you saved us by your grace completely from beginning to end. We don't work for our salvation, Lord. Help us to never think that we do. But Lord, help us to accept the responsibility Uh, that you have told us to obey, to work out our salvation, to take what you've freely given us and, and to, with your help working through us, to produce fruit, to produce change in our life, to do good works for others. 
You don't need our good works, but our neighbors do, Lord God. And so help us to put others first. Help us to obey you in all of the ways that you call us to obey you and to be changed from the inside out. And God, we praise you that you do not call us to do it by our own resources. You do not leave us on our own, but that you are working in and through us, Lord God. That you, God, you are the one working in our lives. We praise you. May you receive all of the glory as we live for you with our whole selves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.